0: I would say though, the image of Acts chapter two is just powerful. It's a powerful model for how to live in a multilingual society. Acts describes people speak different languages, meaning to say that it's not, I I don't speak my language. I speak other people's language. So Acts does not show that other people have to speak my language, no actually shows that through the word of the spirit, I'm able to speak your language. So it, it, it actually, it, it shows a higher level or a higher level of hospitality. Instead of like demanding you to speak my language so that I can be comfort, comfortable, right? I come to you and be hospitable to you by trying to speak your language.
1: Welcome, bienvenido, to uh, episode 58, that's 58 of um, the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Today, guys, I have been looking forward to this one for a long time. I worked hard to procure uh, a conversation with uh, our guest today, uh, Dr. Ekaputra Tupamahu, uh, and it was, for me, at the very least, well worth the weight. Uh, Eka, as he uh, likes to go for short, is a professor um, at Portland Seminary uh, uh, and also at George Fox University. Uh, But mostly what we talk about today is his book, Contesting Languages. Now, here's the deal. If you know nothing at all about the phenomenon uh, in charismatic or Pentecostal circles that is known as speaking in tongues, uh, I would be surprised. Because honestly, It turns out that a lot of people who aren't even really in the church know about this, whether it's from pop culture or, you know, hearing about it. Uh, Honestly, probably in a lot of cases, uh, maybe it being caricatured. Um, But anyway, if you don't know about it at all, or more specifically, if you have not read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in a long time or ever— It might be helpful to pause right now and read that chapter in particular. I put a hot link to it in the show notes, but, you know, not required, just might be helpful because we kind of do a deep dive and don't really, we try to define some terms as we go, but we start pretty fast and furious going at his thesis, uh, which is really kind of counter to what is the modern understanding of the phenomenon known as Tongues. Now, this is one of these rare opportunities for me to say, uh, remind people, which I probably should do every time, but I don't, that uh, you know the the opinions of the guests that you hear on this podcast are their own and not necessarily mine. Um, yeah, I even say in this conversation that I'm not necessarily a hundred percent convinced by his arguments, but I will say that it's uh, engaging with this work has been tremendously helpful. And important for me, it's really, uh, it's taught me a lot, and and yeah, it's it's really been helpful for me. So I'll leave it at that. I think that this is a very worthwhile conversation. It will test and stretch some people. It might fly over some people's heads, um, but for the most part, I think everybody will get a little something out of it. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. Has done a lot more, an un- unthinkable amount of work in this, and this is not even his first language, which of course is germane. To the conversation. One thing that I don't think we actually say much in the conversation, and so I should probably b- draw it out now, is that Corinth, which is of course the the Greek city um, that Paul is writing the letter to, you know, the Corinthians, is apparently a very, very, at least at this point in time, a very cosmopolitan, very multicultural, very multilingual city. Uh, that is important. Remember this. It's kind of like the beginning of a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. You know, uh, Marleys were dead. You we remember this, or else nothing that follows will be exciting, or something to that effect. Anyway, without any further ado, uh, my conversation with uh, the incomparable. Uh, talking about language. So you I'm assuming you stumbled across a, a, a fair number of like languages in your yeah. in your education, right?
0: Yeah, languages have been a part of my life. You know, I've studied quite a bit. In, in, in Indonesia itself is a very multilingual space. It, you know um, my mom my mom was able to sit past already. She was able to speak Dutch. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know Indonesian language for sure. In mm. Indonesia itself, there are seven hundred languages, so it's a very multilingual space. Um, That's a lot of languages. A lot of languages. So, a, lot. Just... a lot. And I remember when I, I, I went for um for um, um ministry in 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 Kalimantan, which is Borneo, the in so I remember crossing the river. From one village to the other, it's already a different language over there, just crossing the river. But then we have the Indonesian language. And, uh, you know, as a biblical scholar, you know, I have to be able to speak, not to speak, but, you know, to read Greek and Hebrew. And I studied Aramaic, studied uh, uh, Syriac, Sahidic Coptic, French, German for grad school, for sure, you know, um, and English. English is my
1: second language, so. <laughs> quite yeah, a well, bit. was English your second language from a pretty early age?
0: No, I actually pick up English. Uh, I would say in grad school when I was when I went to the first time I went to an English speaking school uh, was in the Philippines. It was in two thousand three. I did my md
1: Okay.
0: So I yeah. pick it, pick it up pretty late. Yeah. I remember at one point in my life, I really wanted to be able to know this language, so I just pick up um, a book from the library and just read it, even though I did not know what
1: I was reading. Just so great. you had the gift of interpretation at a young age, then, Eka.
0: <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. It was like it was a, it was hard, but the I at the time I I.
1: The,
0: Use that approach because I thought that a language would have like some words would be repeated over and over and over again.
1: Sure.
0: And by being familiar, by making myself familiar with the with the actual language instead of just you know we 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 really learn we 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 learn basic English, but you know I don't know English. I, I cannot guarantee that I can I knew English at the time. So instead of just rely on you know. Basic English structure where I learned in in high school or in middle school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you want to do present tense, for instance, like uh, subject, and then you have verb, and if it is the person singular, you have that s or es. So, uh, I I thought at the time I just have to jump into the language and 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 you know, immersion. Get- and, and get lost there, basically. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's probably... It was, super
0: helpful. it was super helpful. I took the book with me all the time. I, I don't remember what book I was looking for. You know, it was like,
1: it was crazy. It's probably catching yeah. the rye. Uh So, but, and then, uh, you know, so around the neck of the woods here, so I, I mentioned to via correspondence in advance, like, uh, you're you're in a... You're in I'm assuming I'm speaking to you from Portland, Oregon right now. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So you're all the way on the west coast of North America. I'm all mm-hmm. the way on the east coast of North America. What a lot of people don't know is that the east coast of Canada goes more east than the mm-hmm. east coast of the US does. So there's this eastern time zone, and then you you can just keep on moving, man. We're yeah. over we're over here. So I'm in the Atlantic time zone. And so what time is it now? it is 7:05 uh, p.m. so i think we're that makes us 4 hours apart. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then in, i mean and this is not a geography lesson but you already talked about borneo borneo. So like uh, if you go even further east in canada there's this island called newfoundland which is a half an hour later. So if you're in newfoundland right now it would be 7:35. Wow. So those guys are really messed up. <laughs> but from from over here in uh, so canada is an officially bilingual nation so like okay. it's legisla- it's legislation is french and english um when they stand up in the the legislature to speak they mm-hmm. often speak in french and english so it's like you know it's it's really functionally bilingual however there's only one province because these provinces have less autonomy than say states do but they they function very similarly and so our province little province of new brunswick is the only officially bilingual province Mm -hmm. in our whole country. And I Mm -hmm. live in Moncton, which is sort of, we would say the unofficial bilingual hub of Mm -hmm. this bilingual province within this bilingual country. So it's like, it's a melt, it's a kind of a melting pot of languages, um, but also very mutually distinct. So there's parts of very nearby, you can grow up within like a half an hour of where I live and never learn to speak English. You can be only right. you can right. be only French. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can also, but I mean, this is germane to your book, because in a second we're going to set up your book, but there is this, both the centripetal and the centrifugal forces, which I think you outline from, this is Bakhtin, is this right, who talks about this? Michael, yeah. I'm sorry? Mikhail Bakhtin, yeah. Yes, Mikhail Bakhtin, yes, exactly. Who talks about how English seems to have a unique Force in the world, and uh, so I, I see the I see that uh, as somebody who grew up. I mean, my father didn't learn to speak English until he was twenty. My <laughs> first word was French, but uh, but there is a there is a a force uh, a force to be reckoned with in the English language, yeah. uh, and I, such that I took an English degree from the University of London as my undergrad. Yeah. So I like yeah. English. Don't worry, but but I yeah. am but genetically, <laughs> in some respects, and by virtue of of kind uh, of prima language, I was a, a French speaker. That's so cool, yeah. so I have an easy, weensy bit of a, and then also, and we'll talk a little bit later about why I'm so fascinated by this, by the premise of this book. So Thanks all so that you. being said, what is the premise of this book, this enormous book?
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that you take your time to read it. Um, you know, sometimes when you write books you, you, you don't think people are going to read it. You know, it's like and uh, you're surprised how people can really relate to the things that you're writing. So the idea that i I put in the book is very simple is that language is not just a structure of knowledge and and you know this you know what is his name um, yeah, so sure, called it the system of science. Language is not just that. Language is also a site of political struggle and sociopolitical struggle. So uh, if people today wrestle with the uh, linguistic differences, right, you know, who's gonna use the language, what kind of language we're gonna use, um, the premise of the book is that early Christians also wrestle with the same issue, where they, they wrestle with the issue of multilinguality of the world around them. Uh, it's just the reality of human life Uh, When people move from one place to the other, they will bring language with them, and the encounter, the linguistic encounter, um, always uh, becomes a site of struggle. So that's the that's the basic idea of the book.
1: It it, that's the I mean I would say that that's the on ramp into the book in some respects. So like that's that is the and you highlight for yourself a bit of a personal story. Yeah. It seemed like there was a light bulb moment that happened to you when you found your way into California, right? And you were working with yeah. a, a church in California. Church in California and yeah. you started to notice something and that if I'm not putting words in your mouth, that seems like the time when all of a sudden this kind of passion for understanding how language works maybe was ignited for you. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I, I yeah, I I did not spend a lot of time to think of a language before that. Uh, but when it was, it was, it was the, really the experience in California, I remember uh, some people who really wanted to do a certain job and because they have really strong Indonesian accent speaking English, when they speak English, they you know, were not able to uh, get higher in that position, which at then I, you know I totally understand. but instead of asking the question why don't they speak English, I asked the question why English? Right knowing that America itself is a is a is a country of immigrants why English mm-hmm. that, that triggers the the research into how English became a dominant language in the United States and also why Greek and Latin and so on you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then and then i that life experience influenced the way. I look into biblical texts and say like, there are so many things that are going on here le- related to linguistic struggles that somehow get overlooked by many biblical scholars because they only see this as a, an aesthetic speech. And I, I I was a little bit confused that I grew up Pentecostal, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I've always understood this as, a, as an aesthetic speech, this phenomenon called speaking in tongues. Uh, But then I I begin to read more and more about it, and there is almost no phenomenon outside um, New Testament that you can say that that's the parallel phenomenon of speaking in tongues, like the the, the gibberish, what do you call it? um, Unintelligible static speech. You almost can't find any parallel. In the Greek world, even in the Old Testament or in, a, in the Hebrew Bible, you don't have that. So what is this, you know, idea of speaking in tongues as, a, as an aesthetic speech? So that triggers that uh, inquiry into the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Also, when I, when I learned Greek, in the word is used everywhere to refer to language, right, tongue. In English, we still use that to, until today. You know, mother tongue is, is somebody's, you know, first language. So it's somehow the remnant of of that influence of Greek still feels in English language as well. The word "tongue" is 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 is, is um, the word for language. So a lot of linguistic dynamics and linguistic struggles in the New Testament gets overlooked because of that.
1: Right. So you get this passionate uh, kind of view into. Like you mentioned, the kind of place of struggle that language becomes for people. Mm-hmm. But you're not a sociologist, you're not a linguist, no. you're not a philologist, you're not an ologist, ologist, ologist. But you're a you're a, at this point in time, you are already a biblical scholar, is that right? Or you're and you're, you're on your way towards on the way yeah on towards PhD. And so mm-hmm. you go well. I'll, I'll look at the, what I know and and what I spend my time in, right, the Bible. And when you do that you come across, as you mentioned, I mean, something that you have a personal experience with because you grew up in a Pentecostal church. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you come across this idea of what we normally call in English, speaking in tongues. Side note, what would you have called it in your native tongue?
0: Oh, it's it's a, it, it's a funny expression. They call it the Bahasa Roh, spiritual language, which is not actually in Greek at all.
1: No, and but it is very much... Uh, a popular understanding of what is happening during this time. Right. So that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, so you come across this concept and then, and you see that it's in the Bible and you see that it's, or you see that there are uh, signs, se- semiotics. There's this, there's, there's stuff in the Bible, there are words that mm-hmm. point to this concept that we now know from church experience that's shorthanded in English as uh, speaking. speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And you start to go, can, does this mean what, I've been taught that it Exactly, means. exactly. Yeah, exactly. and so your book is 400 and some odd pages of trying I, to...
0: I think, no, it's not that that thick. It's like 200 something, 280. <laughs> oh, something.
1: oh, sorry, I looked at your dissertation, sorry. Your dissertation is 400 some odd pages of it. Maybe, I'm sure you got a redacted <laughs> version of it for your <laughs> the,
0: dissertation was, the dissertation
1: was close to 500 pages, you're right. Yeah, okay, yeah, so contesta- like, oh, contesting my, languages. Oh <laughs> uh, You know you gotta you gotta shore up the up yeah. the argument. So contesting languages is a much more readable length. There you go, people. Yeah. Don't be, be not afraid. Um, mm-hmm. But as you're working through this, what sorts of things do you discover in the text that you mes- n- didn't necessarily expect to see there?
0: Yeah, um, one of the things that came. Uh, to, like, better light was the idea of translation, right? I was always confused with what does it mean if this is an, an unintelligible gibberish and, and Paul says you have been, been translation or translated. So, you know, what is this translation, right? Because translation is always from one meaningful language, you know, and then the language is decoded into uh, meaningful language. So, uh, okay. if it is gibberish, then you know what? What? What are you going to decode from there, right? Or what are we going to transfer from there? So, the the, the whole idea of translating or interpreting is the same word in Greek, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, translating translating uh, tongues doesn't it didn't make sense at all in the in the know, in the past understanding of tongues. This makes perfect sense to me now that when Paul demands for translation, he's actually asking these people to speak or to to translate the language that they use. That is one of the things that somehow gets, I I get better understanding of the dynamic of the text, right? um, The other one is the word glosa, and it, it typically appears in a, in a dative case, which is glose uh, with iota, uh, Glosse or glossize. So it appears in both singular and plural forms. Uh, how do you make sense of this? like uh, is there uh, is there s- such thing as singular, Aesthetic speech and plural aesthetic speech. How do you distinguish these two, right? Of singular tongues, you speak in a tongue and speak in tongues, right? Mm. So singular and plural, but in language. You understand it perfectly. That, you know, there's one language, then there's many languages, you know? So, or what uh, Bhakti called. There's this sort of centripetal and centrifugal. There's multiplicity, and there's also effort to unify language, right? Mm. Um, so, it, the, the reading this phenomenon as a as a multilingual dynamic or multilingual phenomenon makes a lot more sense to me than aesthetic speech,
1: right? So I got us down the, the, as is my want, I got us down the track a little bit fast. So if I back us up, when you come to the text, you come to 1 Corinthians, I mean, the, the kind of ground zero for the ecstatic speech understanding of the phenomenon of tongues is probably 1 Corinthians chapter 14, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it maybe gets alluded to in the spiritual gifts uh, mm. listings in in channel in chapter 12, mm. Um and then there's obviously an, uh, a, call it a parallel um, or maybe a, uh, an accompanying version of this phenomenon in Acts chapter two after Pentecost. Um, but let's leave those for now, and let's say let's say First Corinthians fourteen is sort of like the because it from, from my reading of your your work it seems like that's ground zero like that's that's well, the place that, that the you direction. place that you start and kind of work through this. Um, hmm. And so for anybody who is kind of because we, we we launched some terms in here, but then I didn't we didn't necessarily define them. So if you didn't grow up in a church environment, you're like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. There is this term that's maybe we would say is ecstatic speech. And mm-hmm. so or sometimes and so maybe these are not exactly the same thing, but sometimes maybe uh, you might hear a prayer language. Um, mm-hmm. These are again, not exactly the same maybe, but I think they give us they're both coming at least from a biblical understanding. They're both coming from this one section of scripture. So kind of ecstatic speech would be this kind of like the bubbling over this idea of almost like an uncontrollable um, verbal expression. Un-
0: un- un- uncontrollable movement of tongues. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and this is more similar to what you're talking about babbling in some respects. This is where it's kind of like just noise that's being made. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> there's this Zoom feature that we have that's giving us thumbs up and thumbs down uh, erratically. So be not afraid. Uh, That has nothing to do with what we're saying. So uh, that's kind of like ecstatic speech. This is kind of, uh, this would maybe kind of be in the world of ASCs or altered states of consciousness in some respects. This is where almost like you could say this in the same kind of world as prophecy, where it's like, it's as though there's this kind of external message that's coming to you, and you have very little control, control over it. Over, exactly, yeah, that'd be ecstatic speech. And yeah. then prayer language—they they could say that this ecstatic speech is a prayer language, mm-hmm. but then there's also some people who view prayer language as just a private prayer language. That's somebody that who's a, a spirit-filled Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a a language that is essentially just between them and God. So it's not intended to be kind of externally understood or externally decoded. It is it is a private thing. Uh, and so I think this is kind of like the Romans, um, I can't remember if it's Romans 1 or Romans 2 or Romans 8, but there's this kind of the groanings that are kind of yeah. too Romans deep 8. for words or whatever. Yep. Um, so this is a, and this is where you start to see that there is a deep, um, even though first Corinthians 14 is the ground zero for like the term from our, from our approach where we're saying, Hey, glossa ah, like, this is the words there is a, a new Testament. And frankly, there are old, like old Testament. There's a lot of like interconnectedness throughout the scriptures that theologically people bring to bear upon this conversation as they're thinking through it, kind of both, uh, personally, and then also kind of like, Corporately and religiously, right?
0: That's that has been always the conversation around speaking in tongues. Yeah. So, but but what I'm trying to say in this book here, this project, is that there's another element that we need to think about when we when we think about tongues is that mm-hmm. element of the politics of language, the politics of multilingualism, and. Um, And that, again, like what you said, has been overlooked precisely because this phenomenon has been thoroughly spiritualized, psychologized, right, Uh, has been thoroughly um, um, theologized, too, instead of looking into the the social and political element of that. So I I just bring that aspect uh, into the conversation. Right. This is not just about prayer, but this is also a, a community that get together. And, you know, they might pray in a certain language uh, that Paul doesn't f- maybe understand because Paul, said, Paul basically says that you know, nobody understands. In Greek, actually, it means uh, nobody hears because there were akoi uh, is used there, Uh Nobody hears, so Paul is very concerned about the hearers. So, if you speak, it it, not, it doesn't mean that the language itself or the speech itself is understandable. It actually it means that the language is not understandable by the hearers. Mm-hmm. So that shows that what happened here is the phenomenon of foreign languages. Foreign languages are not understandable because. Not because that language is not understandable or unintelligible or that speech, it's because the hearers don't understand. Right. And then the way the Greeks uh often call those who are not Greeks, they call them barbarians because they are blah, 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 because you know we don't understand the language. Right. They the language becomes gibberish. Not because the language is gibberish, the language becomes gibberish because the hearers don't understand.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. There's an English aphorism. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's, I mean, it's probably not English in origin, but if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Yeah. It's sort of a philosophical question. So it's like, it's the idea that it's if it's not heard, and in this case, even in English, we know this. We know that here, when it's used in this way, means understand, right? Because it's like, it's like, did, did you hear me? What we mean is, do you understand? Yeah, you understand, what I'm understand. Right, do you hear yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, do you yeah, exactly.
0: you yeah, yeah, yeah. You have that in English, yeah, yeah. The, the way it, it is translated as no one understands somehow. I've read many, many commentaries, or many, many scholars argue that oh, this is an unintelligible speech because nobody understands because paul used that term nobody understands maybe because not because nobody and so nobody understands because not because that that speech is understandable Mm
1: -hmm.
0: nobody understands because the people who hear don't understand (laughs) those are two different things
1: yeah and then also i mean i don't know if nobody in greek works the same way as it does in english but like i can walk into a restaurant with three or four people sitting in the corner booth at like five o'clock and I can expect it to be a nice full restaurant because it's supper time, and I can be like, "Hey, it's like, it's like nobody here." Uh, yeah, the three, yeah. The three people who are in the corner might be offended by my describing them as nobody, but there is a lot less people here than I would yeah. expect. So
0: it's, it's a rhetorical. Yeah, it's a rhetorical style. Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah. You're um. Right. So, uh, you you talk about in the book how? Um. Uh, spoiler alert. I'm not sure if I. Uh, <laughs> not that it matters because who, who am I? But I'm not sure that I actually agree with all this. But I'm trying to understand okay. it because I find I find Fun. it I find it fascinating. <laughs> so in the book, you describe how there's a very long, like probably about 1700 year tradition yeah. mm-hmm. of uh, re- reception history that describes this uh as the mission ha- describes the tongues phenomenon as a missionary expansionist
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, philosophy. What what do you mean by that?
0: So um, the early readers of the Bible, particularly Paul's text, and also first, uh, also Acts chapter two, often read this phenomenon of tongues as a miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages, because for the purpose of preaching the gospel. So that's why I call it uh, missionary expansionist uh, framework. So it's a the, the emphasis that is actually miraculous. So uh, they they believe that. The like the gift of tongues is the gift of sudden ability to speak different languages. Because you know, when you want to preach the gospel to the other, other culture, the thickest barrier among people is not their clothes. It's easy to put on somebody's clothes, right? Or food, you know, you can just eat it, whatever Chinese food or Turkish food or, you know, Filipino food. Language is the thickest barriers. Right. So they believe that in the early readings of this text, they believe that uh, it is the work of God to give that ability to speak uh,
1: to speak um, foreign languages. And this for is the, where Acts two is where Acts two features more prominently, no doubt, in how they understand it. Right? it yeah. mm,
0: a lot of a lot of
1: Acts chapter two, but Corinthians two. Okay.
0: So um, um, so for the purpose of propagating the gospel because because the gospel needs to be preached to different linguistic uh group of people so it, it is consistently so meaning to say that Hans as uh as an aesthetic speech you you didn't hear that before 17th century or 18th century nobody talk about it um at least I didn't find any you know somebody somebody can but perhaps my point is that Majority people, you just can trace it all the way to the, to the around 1700, 1800, 1700 particular, 1800. You still have people believe in this then early 1800. But the change of understanding began to take place in late 18th century, and then there's an explosion of scholarship, particularly in Germany, hmm. in the 19th century, on speaking in tongues. That mainly challenged the already the accepted or the established view all the way to the 18th, and they challenge it. And they said, no, no, that's not a right reading of the text. Tongues should not be understood as multilingual phenomena. Tongues have to be understood as an aesthetic phenomenon.
1: And this and is that Header, field, Header, you said, is this the primary person or Heder? Johann you Herder, Johann Guthrie, Herder. Herder.
0: Okay. Johann Herder. So Herder is a philosopher Fascinating philosopher, particularly in late 18th century, um, people who study German Romanticism would always go back to Herder because he's the father of German Romantic philosophy. Um, he's also biblical scholars. He's very influential in changing a lot of things in biblical scholarship. Like before Herder, everybody uh, look in look uh, not everybody but you know the majority few the the main. main the dominant view on the relationship or the Gospels, for instance, Matthew is considered as the as the first Gospel and the other Gospel follow. It was Herder who challenged that.
1: Hmm.
0: It was not actually Matthew, but Mark. And then Herder's view get picked up in the in, the, in the 19th century. And then That's by mid-19th point. century, mid-19th century, a scholar named... Um, uh, um, God, his name escaped my mind. Uh, but me, around 1860, 1850s, there's a shift of understanding of, you know, from, from Mathean priority to Markham priority. So Herder is a very influential person, not only in political studies and philosophical studies, but also in biblical studies as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the most important contributions of Herder is to challenge this idea that, you uh, that speaking in tongues is a multilingual phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So in order to understand Herder's um, rejection of the multilinguality of tongues, we need to understand that for Herder, language is originated in human feeling. So somehow people, scholars in the, in the late 18th centuries was very obsessed with the question of where this phenomenon called language, where does this come from? Right. Uh, you know, because this is just so remarkable, that ability to produce language, because, you know, social life is all organized by language, people, everything, you know. Um, so this where does this come from? So there's a, you know, there's a prominent view, particularly in the late 18th century that argue that language comes from god you know part of the creation in the image of god and so on is the ability to speak or to produce mm-hmm. language herder challenged that view so for herder uh, language does not come from god language comes from within human need to express their feeling mm. so Herder then her argues that the, orig- the origin of language is like is 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 very animalistic, meaning to say just like other animal, you know, dog barks, and uh, cats meow, mm-hmm. they they express their feeling through the sound of uh, barking and barking and meowing. So to make a long story short, there's a whole explanation around it. I wrote a long sort of explanation of her philosophy of language. But he argues that because a human has this capacity for reasoning, uh, that separates us from human the other animals, then because we and, and then when we express our feeling, our expression of feeling is is more complex than just barking or meowing. So, uh, so then you know. Um, he argues that the highest, uh, the higher a language is, the more engaging that language in, in, in uh, engaging with, with human feeling. So, the more engaging a language t- to human feeling, the higher a language is. Okay. So, for him, a higher level of language is more poetic language. That's that's his argument. And remember, this is late eighteenth century. So he began to 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 use this idea of the origin of language. He has an essay called The The Origin of Language. Um, So he argues that because language is originated from, in in, in human feeling, then the collective feeling is a mark of a a people, or an Einfok, a nation. So, uh, so, what is the what is what makes a nation a nation, right? What what makes us a people, right? And he argues that that's the unification, that's the language that actually unites us. So that's the early early stage of the German nationalistic thinking. Uh, so, so some scholars call him as the father of uh, uh, father of of uh cultural national, nationalism cultural nationalism um and later in 18 1870 then in you know, german german kingdoms get unified into a german nation but the early thinking early early articulation of german nationalism had already started with the people like herder so nationalism and romanticism are connected mm-hmm. particularly in herder's, herder's idea of language so, Hunter's, Hunter's, Hunter wrote an essay on speaking in tongues, and he looked back into this text and he was like, How in the world these people speak many languages, different languages? They don't need to speak different languages, right? right. Uh, because as a people, they cannot speak many languages. They should not, they have to speak one language. So, he argues that oh, all this is not, tongues is not a, a multilingual phenomenon. So, what is it then, if it is not a multilingual? And he argues that oh no no, tongues is an expression explosion of, of human feeling in a in like in a highly poetic language. Now you you can see how his romanticism his nationalism kicks in here in and gets somehow you know mixed in his reading of uh, mixed up in his reading of uh, of speaking in tongues, highly poetic but it's an expression of feeling. And then in the nineteenth century, that idea gets picked up to a point in which by the end of the nineteenth century, feeling has already overtaken all the discussion on, on tongues, to a point in which it's no longer a language. It is just a pure explosion of feeling, explosion of excitement, and uh, to a point in which the speaker doesn't even know what the speaker is, you know, what they are talking about. They lose their consciousness because they are so bound, so overwhelmed with this spe- feeling of excitement enthusiasm. That's why um, if you read 19th century German scholarship on tongues, they often call tongue speakers enthusiasts. Hmm. And you can see, every time I read uh, uh, commentaries on First Corinthians and, and they call they call um, tongue speakers enthusiasts. I was like, oh, this is the legacy of the 19th century scholarship. So yeah. in the 20th century, everybody read it as, not well, everybody, but most people read tongues, tongues phenomenon in in First Corinthians and Acts as an aesthetic speech. So this is a really newly developed uh, interpretation. Mm. mainly 19th century, and then it became it becomes a dominant reading or dominant understanding or dominant interpretation in the 20th century. Prior to it, everybody, most people would see tongues as a linguistic phenomenon, as a language, as a language phenomenon.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful uh, to walk through. So, Seth, so thank you it occurs to me that one thing that I don't know that I saw in the, in the book. And so this is where we're now we're starting to veer into, these are off the cuff questions. So, you, yeah, you know, yeah. if you're like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to talk about that or I'm not ready to talk about that. That's totally fine. No, no, no. But now I'm curious. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a scholarly interpretation that starts with, uh, you know, 18th century kind of later ger- yeah. late German critics mm-hmm. who feel so far removed from early 20th century west coast of america azusa street type pentecostals like it feels like those are worlds that did not touch is what is what it feels like now heaven knows you know via seminary and via you know publications like i, I ideas travel in very wild ways even before the internet so it's certainly not unthinkable that this information would have processed towards them, but this is where, in our experience, as far as we know, in in the modern world, twentieth early twentieth century kind of Pentecostal explosion, that's when this kind of phenomenon of tongues becomes something that people start to experience, talk about in like popular church circles. And, and I, uh, pro- yeah, I you know
0: I'm I'm glad that you bring it up because if you read early Pentecostals literature. Mm-hmm. Um, Azusa Street produced this magazine or this uh, yeah magazine called Apostolic Faith. Uh, just read Apost- Apostolic Faith, and then you can see like Apostolic Faith. Many of these people who give this gave their testimony still saw tongues as a as a language,
1: as a human language,
0: as a human language. Right. So they, their understanding is very much pre-Hardarian understanding of of tongues. Okay. So, you know, you encounter this over and over again in in apostolic faith. Like they say that last night I was praying and then God gave me a Chinese language and I spoke a Chinese language or a Russian language or you know or you know Tagalog or whatever. So, you you constantly find it in in uh in apostolic faith with which is the the main magazine produced by Asus Street. Hmm. Okay. So the idea that comes in the static speech in Pentecostal movement is a later development too.
1: Okay. So That's interesting. So then I guess a parallel, and uh, 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 one question to add into that is these people who were kind of like, I was going to say ivory tower, but I don't really know what color the towers would have been in yeah, yeah, Um yeah. People who are sitting there working through these texts or whatever, they are romantics, which is kind of like, honestly, it, it took... It took you i think pointing out to me I mean, you know as somebody who's read a good amount of english romantic literature from the yeah, 18th yeah. century i don't think of biblical critical scholars as Would being as though they're they're running through the fields and smelling flowers at the same time because this is sort of the romantic the picture. romantic uh, but i don't even just mean like the you know hallmark movie romantic but i mean like just the no, idea not, not, not that, not that romantic of, of people just who are just like you know running after life and just wanting to experience everything or whatever um so Are they practicing something like ecstatic speech?
0: I don't know. You know, there isn't a phenomenon in England. Oh, God, his name escaped my mind again. I'm so sorry. Mm. Yeah, there's a phenomenon in England. People say that that's a proto-Pentecostal phenomenon. Uh, Oh, God. I wish I have name in well, the name. Well, you mentioned
1: enthusiasts earlier, and I know that, for example, John Wesley and people of the Methodist movements got slagged. Not John Wesley. Um, they got slagged as enthusiasts, and so I don't know to what degree those those names end up getting carried over with each other. But so, so
0: yeah, this movement uh, in England uh, marked really by an aesthetic experience, and what's interesting, the German scholars every time they look for parallel experience of tongues in the New Testament, they always point to that phenomenon in England. Okay. Um uh, Irwin. Yeah, Irwin. That's the name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Irwin. Uh, Ir- Ir- Irving, Irving Irving movement in, in England. Okay. So it's a it's a it's it's a pre Pentecostal sort of aesthetic kind of experience in England. So before even before Azus Street. Right. So many many people scholars are like, oh yeah, this is phenomenal thanks. and they think like this is an aesthetic speech. So how do you like like what? Like you know, they they'll try to look for parallels and they point to that phenomenon in England.
1: Okay, there
0: you go. Um, um, but even Alipanicosis don't they didn't even see it as a, an aesthetic speech. They saw it as a as a human language experience. But again. <laughs> pre-Hardarian understanding is a, it's a miraculous ability to speak in foreign language.
1: Right. Uh, the, yeah. The reason I, I, I bring up the question about like, Hey, were they, were these guys uh, just people conceptualizing this or were they maybe practicers of it?
0: I don't think, I don't think they, I don't find any, any indication that they actually practice that.
1: Right. And that makes sense to me. And here's why is because uh-huh. the, the exa- the, the image, the mm-hmm. the caricature of an 18th century German biblical scholar is one who is starting to pull at every available thread that they could even hope to find in the Bible. So like the idea of just like completely kind of tearing it down to the studs, There, I would say that there's kind of a sense that we view them as kind of like innately anti-supernaturalist. This is where you start to get this idea that if it's not natural, it's not possible.
0: Um, I, I see it more not not necessarily anti-supernatural. I see it more as um, as rationality against non-rationality. So there's an expression of irrationality, okay. right? So things becomes this that this sort of uh, exemplifies. As, as something that exemplifying irrational irrationality mm-hmm. of uh, of um, particularly non Western world, if I may use that term.
1: Sure.
0: All right. So, th- what's interesting you you mentioned about altered state of consciousness, right? There's a lot of uh, um, later newer scholarship actually they challenge that idea of outer state of consci- consciousness because outer state of consciousness always dis- used to describe people at the margin who are supernaturalists, right? Uh, you know, uh, Felicia Goodman, I don't know, if, I don't know if you're familiar with that name. She she, she works on a lot of uh, anthropo- anthropological phenomena. They call it tongues, and she calls tongues, speakers particularly in the modern time, as as uh, those who experience this altered state of conscious, consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and she uses Indonesia as an example, but it's very interesting, you know, because Indonesia has a, has a, has a, like, festival in which people used, like, they, they built a, like, horse from a, from wood, and then they begin to ride that horse, and then they begin to be in a, in an altered state of consciousness, right? And she argues that, Tanks in Pentecostal movement probably, probably uh, resembles the same so altered state of consciousness, but then uh, like the newest book, like Harvard professor, um, his name is Giovanni Bazzana, He questioned it, he, and which I think correctly so, because he said, you know, he said that if you call this an altered state of consciousness, then who is who possessed the normal state of consciousness altered from where altered from what
1: okay
0: so who actually has the has this the normal state of consciousness in which other people so right <laughs> and it's me right <laughs> so um so so that, that that that's another thing that i actually did i i didn't look close closely into my, or i didn't use it as part of my argument in the book mm-hmm. right so it shows how uh you know, certain expression of human religiosity can be can be described as as irrational and altered in their consciousness you know right as opposed to uh, complete coherent rationality
1: mm mm-hmm right I mean that fits very I would say tightly with the kind of argument that you you kind of bring to bear on on the power of language as though there is there is a normative language just mm-hmm. as just as there is a normative kind of state of consciousness now, I would, of consciousness. Yeah. now I, I would say that my understanding just I mean we don't need to go down this as a rabbit trail but my understanding of altered states of consciousness is I think the way that I've heard it is it's an altered state from your own Consciousness. So the idea of like somebody who is like an ecstatic uh, in terms of like prophecy, they don't live, like they have a baseline, which is mm-hmm. different than my baseline and different than your baseline, but it's a, it's a, it's a home base. They live there most of the time. Uh, it, it gets altered. And then they, that gets altered. So it's not altered from some sort of ideal version of it. It's, it's altered from their normative state, I think is to put, to, to be as but, chari- but then- charitable as possible on that viewpoint but then again the guy from harvard i'm sure did a lot more research than i did on it so we'll go ahead and say that he probably has a much more sophisticated argument than the one it's a very sure, it's but very
0: very i i was actually in a, i uh, last year i was in a panel reviewing his book a very fascinating book
1: sure yeah um but the reason that i wanted to bring that up is um again we're heading into a, a, we heading into a territory here i mean you grew up pentecostal so mm-hmm. uh presumably you witnessed and or participated in in the phenomena that we now come to know as as tongues and people who are listening to this right now are either they're people who have or who haven't um it's Mm -hmm. there's a reason that it's such a divisive topic It's a, you know, and it has been divisive. I mean, look, look at how much there's some ink on it in the New Testament. Uh, and there's some ink on it in, uh, do I have my, dis- I, have, I serve in a, in a, a Wesleyan church, is, uh, which is a, uses the name of John Wesley, but it kind of is a, an amalgam of a holiness tradition and a Methodist tradition. It's a kind of a smaller denomination. There's been a lot of ink that's been spilled in our disciplines over the last, uh, you know, 40, 40, 40 or 60 years or so about, you know, whether or not tongues is a good thing or whether yeah, it's something, yeah. something that we should do in churches or whatever. I mean, and we're just yeah. one, one of many, many, many denominations totally. who have been split or who have been yeah. rallied around this concept. It's yeah. a very, very divisive thing. And people hold it they hold it close to their hearts because they either experienced it and it's been they experienced what we're calling it uh, and it has been deeply meaningful for them or there's been people who've been wounded because they have mm-hmm. not experienced it right they've wanted yeah. to and they haven't and it's uh and there's people who, there's people who really genuinely believe to their core that it's something that is real and that is a God given gift. And I think a lot of Pentecostals would say it's part of the restoration movement. So why we don't see a whole lot of clear teaching on it is because this is just one more thing that has been kind of restored to the lost church from, you know, time, you know, pre-Constantinian times or whatever. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's totally fine that we don't have a lot of teaching on it. There's people who believe that. And there's also people who, who believe that it's not true at all. Like that it, that this kind of, yeah, and they, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That exactly. And these people <laughs> often tend to believe that, and this is not always the case. I don't. I don't want to lump people together, but in my limited yeah. experience, they tend to also be the kind of people who think that God can't say heal somebody today or mm-hmm. speak a word of mm-hmm. prophecy. To them. So they're kind of cessationists, and this fits nicely in their worldview. That also, you know, ecstatic speech or personal prayer languages or the language of, of heaven, like. Of course, it's not real because that's just not something that's possible, right? Um, so you have a lot of like different people vying for your airtime in terms of like so like like Eka, are you going to support me in my beliefs or are you going to yeah. hurt? Are you going to hurt my beliefs? But yeah. like they don't know like this is personal for you too because you would have yeah. had to have come to terms with this in your yeah. own philosophy and theology, right? So, it were you happy to discover that? <laughs> Like was this like oh good or did you find this in some respects difficult to to come to terms with?
0: No, I, I you know I come from Indonesia so, uh, supernaturalism is very common in Indonesia. It's just it's everywhere. It's just like the idea of we need to be rational by by abandoning the idea of supernaturality or mystical experience and things like that is just so far from Indonesian mind. Right? It's very far from Indonesia. So I do this, I'm I'm working on I, I sorry, I work on this particular project not to refute any um experience that people have, right? Not to say that your experience is invalid and things like that. That's at all not a not not the goal. Uh, the goal is mainly to to see how early Christians Wrestle with their, with 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 the phenomenon of language. Hmm. Now the question that I, I'm always wrestling with now is: so how do you understand this particular phenomenon now? Right? This often called speaking in tongues, sure. right? I, I feel this is this still. i I still need to think more about it, but I feel that maybe we shouldn't call it tongues at all because maybe. The phenomenon of tongues is not it's not a static speech, it's the product of 19th century understanding of tongues in Corinthians and, and, and Acts. Acts is very clear actually that this is a language, yeah. Um, can we call something else? Probably we could. Spiritual experience or uh, instead of looking for, Pentecostals often find, it, find themselves at odd with First
1: Corinthians. Oh, yeah. Right, because it says don't do it in church. is kind of the general exactly. vibe, right? Yeah, that's right.
0: Only five minutes at odd with, with First Corinthians. I was like, yeah, I can yeah. understand, you know, because... Yeah,
1: yeah that's good, actually. Yeah, because one of my questions to you is going to be, can this be for you a both-end kind of scenario? So can First Corinthians 14, can the phenomenon of tongues be about, you know, the kind of internal struggle uh, that people have with kind of hierarchically understanding how different languages sit and work mm-hmm. together, uh, natural human, understandable languages? and yeah. can it also be speaking to or giving some some voice to whatever the supernatural experiences that people have yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. shared I, I see I still see the merit of the argument and on the other side, meaning to say that I, I can still see some arguments there, but I Maybe because I've been thinking so much about this and like breaking every Greek word, not every Greek word, but like break, uh, you know, doing a close analysis of the text. I, I became more and more convinced that Paul probably is not dealing with the issue of people who feel like they're more spiritual than other people because they speak spiritual language. Hmm. Paul is dealing with the chaotic of... The chaos of of linguistic differences when people come and they speak different languages, just so chaotic, it's, it's cacophonic. Right, it's cacophonic, and he tries to put order to this. Can this be understood as a spiritual experience? I mean, there's a whole body of scholarship about that, sure. right, from the nineteenth century all the way. Of course, they have many That's why I, you know if you read my my book, I I don't like I don't argue against every point that they make in their understanding of the text. I I just show that my main I just, sorry I just show that this particular understanding is a new development, particular in the history of interpretation of this particular text. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's more constructive in a way that uh, I try to build an argument that you know if you read like you know, plural and singular of tongues, his interpretation and Paul uses of the knowledge of music and things like that. You can make a good case that this is a linguistic phenomenon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so you also, let's, let's talk about Paul for a second. So you, you say that Paul, um, Paul wants to create order out of what he feels Mm -hmm. like is a disorderly Environment. This is the way that you're kind of interpreting it. Um, mm-hmm. So this kind of came home to roost for me. Would have been I mentioned to you that the church in which I currently serve uh, is not just it's a it's in a kind of a historically bilingual place, but recently has become uh, last four to five years in particular has been very very multilingual. So if you are in our church service on a Sunday morning, it's not uncommon for us to have some little snippets of other languages as part of like a song or part of a prayer, part of a welcome. Although it's still our services are like. 97 to 98 maybe 99 percent english it's english 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 um even though we have a history of kind of being a little bit more french english but english is kind of the the dominant language it is and i always think it's funny to say this it is the lingua franca uh it, it is actually the language that it was even though those words are not english it is the most common language that we have but if you then split off into our atrium so our kind of large um Holding place essentially after after the service, you will hear and observe pockets of people speaking in Portuguese, yeah, people yeah. people speaking in Tagalog, people yeah. speaking in can I, um, not I mean maybe some Nigerian dialects. Definitely a lot of French, a good amount of Spanish. They'll kind of like because like people cluster with like people. It's very very natural very normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, during so this is this is cacophonous. It, it especially if it is it is it's like oh my goodness, but but there's no. In this moment, there's really no need for there to be a unified message. We do want—I mean, we—we there's a tension here because we do want this to be a unified people. We don't want people to kind of ghetto off uh, into little sub enclaves all by themselves. But yet, at the same time, it's completely understandable and natural. I've been an expat in another country. I know what it's like to go. Oh my goodness, you're from Canada. Let's talk about hockey and maple syrup, right? Like it's (laughs) just—it's just kind of what you. So it's completely understandable. Yeah, yeah. But I was in a prayer service, would have been a few months ago, and it was just after I'd kind of first been exposed to your your content. And so we had people kind of like um, out in in the auditorium. They were praying. I was on the platform leading a little bit of music. Uh, probably a team about six or seven people on the platform. And so we said, "Hey, why don't we get together and pray?" So we got together and prayed as well. So it went around in circle. People prayed, and then uh, somebody next to me who is from. French-speaking country, mm-hmm. uh, I think Congo. Um, she started praying in French, um, and and it was you know Congolese French, so that's a little bit. I mean, it's peu français, but I'm I, even the dialects make it interesting. And there were some people in the circle who didn't speak French. I mean, so I I understood like we'll say the overwhelming majority of what we said, what she was saying, when she kind of got going, I got a little bit kind of a little bit lost in it, but it, it, all of a sudden I went and kind of like zoomed out for a moment and just kind of observed the moment and realized that there were people whose minds were quote fruitless. They, Mm -hmm. they didn't, they couldn't understand what was happening. Now, this person has likely had to sit through countless hours of quote unquote not fruitless, understand. fruitless yeah. mind. Oh, I got balloons going now. Uh, well, you know, a lot of prayer that she didn't understand. And and it was in that moment that I I mean, yeah. it's not as though I hadn't understand understood that there's a trade-off before, but the trade-off became so, so clear to me um, mm-hmm. in that moment that I was like, I, I understand that there is a desire. And frankly, you could say uh, not a need, but a drive towards having... A singular language that we can that we can communicate with each other in, because otherwise we really are sitting across, like from a, a divide from each other. Like we just we're in the same room, but we're not in the same room, right? If if we don't have the same language, then we're just not experiencing this the same thing, and we can't we can't share that experience together. And yet at the same time, I know that I'm in the position to. um, have the exercise of authority that makes it so that my language is the one that is going to be the dominant one. It's interesting that Paul, who is the Hebrew of all Hebrews, is viewed in this scenario in some respects as the Hellenizer of all Hellenizers. So why is Paul, who we don't think of as being a prototypical Greek, why is he the one who seems to be in this argument proselytizing for people to speak in Greek.
0: Yeah, I mean there's a debate whether Paul was born in Tarsus at all. Like people like, you know, uh, um
1: German scholars. God, I
0: my name somehow escaped my mind maybe late afternoon bro. There's a
1: lot in there. I get it, I get it. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Um but argues that maybe Paul was born in Jerusalem, probably. Some people argue that he's actually the um, the diaspora Jews, meaning to say that he was born in Jerusalem and then uh, migrated to other spaces. Uh, There's a debate whether Acts' description of him being born in Tarsus is a right description or not. But he is the person who is totally Hellenized, very Hellenized, his quotation of the Hebrew Bible mainly come from Sultuagint. Does he know Hebrew? We don't know. He doesn't even use Hebrew a lot in his works. Aramaic. He he wrote mainly in Greek. His his Greek also, uh, John Barclay said his Greek, which is correctly. So his Greek is not super high level Greek too. Um, So his Greek, hes is not highly educated kind of Greek. Uh, so uh, can a person whos is, is'm I'm thinking particularly now from a, an immigrant point of view who is totally English uh, can can they force English to other Indonesians? Oh, I've seen this over and over again sure. Yeah, I've seen this over and again. Over. I often find it odd to go to Indonesian surveys everybody speak English like (laughs) with the brokenness of English, but they just want to just use English. And every like most of them are Indonesians. And I just like, why in the world you use English? I I just don't understand, but I understand too. I don't understand, but I understand too, because many second generation immigrants, particularly uh, in, in immigrant churches, yeah? many of second generations oftentimes cannot relate to the main service because the main service is not I, I totally get it. I totally understand because I was a pastor of Indonesian church. Uh, but it's still odd to me that mostly 95% of Indonesians, and they worship in English.
1: Mm. <laughs> it's part of the argument for their kids so this is a a, a common Maybe argument argue, that i hear some
0: yeah. some of them mainly argue some of them think that you know they would there's that desire uh, it's often unspoken that if you can speak english you know you are you know you'll have a better social sort of uh, uh, status and things like that hmm. and frantz fanon describes this very well in his book black skin's white mask in which he argues that the desire of the colonized to speak and to be like colonizer often lead them to think that to be able to speak the colonizer's language, you right. know, would put them in a in a position equal to the colonizers. So um, there is that I notice, often unspoken. There is the so it's a complex in a way. It's very sure. complex. There is there is element of like we don't want to elim, uh, eliminate or alienate alienate our children who speak mainly English. So it's a complex decision that they, they have to make. I mm-hmm. still find it. Odd, odd. I actually I I I preach in uh, at a at um, Indonesian an service and then somehow had to speak in English. <laughs> And I, I I have to tell them, and it's like, this is a little bit odd to me speaking English, you know. Many of you are Indonesian-speaking people. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, the image of Acts, Chapter 2, is just powerful. Hmm. It's a powerful model for how to live in a multilingual society. Right? Right. Uh, Acts describes people speak different languages, meaning to say that it's not. I I don't speak my language, I speak other people's language. So Acts does not show that, you know, you have other people have to speak my language. No, Acts actually shows that I can through the work of the Spirit. Acts, Acts, the book of Acts, take a look. Put it in the in the framework of the work of the Spirit. In the beginning of that, it's the baptism in the Spirit. They were baptized in the Spirit, but through the work of the Spirit, I'm able to speak your language. So it it, it actually it it shows a higher level or a higher level of hospitality. Hmm. Instead of like demanding you to speak my language so that I can be comf- comfortable, right? I come to you and be. Hospitable to you by trying to speak your language.
1: Yeah,
0: right, you don't need to be in. So I find like that image is powerful to me.
1: It's powerful. Yeah.
0: In Acts chapter two, right?
1: That's, that's good. That's good. Um, this is the last hard question I'll have for you. I promise. Yeah. yeah. Because you're you it you favor that you favor that as an image as though it, it seems like this seems like a this is a, a preferable. Way forward, in some respects, is the idea of being. A at
0: least, at least, there is that imagination of the possibilities. Sure,
1: maybe but because th- I'm an immigrant
0: who speaks English too. I speak somebody else's language. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's completely. You know, mm-hmm. one, one of the questions that I, I would ask if time was limitless, but we mm-hmm. I will just say it and then we'll move on is whether or not English actually is inherently kind of colonial or problematic. I know that you have a section on that in your in your yeah. your book. Yeah. The history
0: Um. of English, there's no language that is inherently colonial. It is the history of the language. Right. The reason reason why Native Americans speak English, because at one point, English was forced. You know, people are put into into, boarding schools when, you know, generations, you know, kids are put in in a boarding school, taught English. And when they came back, the death of the Native American languages, people who study Native American language were arguing, maybe we should not call it language death. We probably should call it language murder because there's an, there's an intentional effort to cleanse those languages.
1: Yeah.
0: So, So I, I don't argue that English inherently in itself is a colonial language. Historically speaking, English becomes an international language, not because other people feel like, oh, I, I love English, I don't like my language and I just want to abandon my language and embrace English. Right. We can romanticize it that way, but the reality on the ground is more bloody than, than 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 somebody like a group of people say like, yeah, I love English. English is a better language <laughs> than my language, right? So I, I guess that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to say is that not, English itself is a colonial language. You know Jacques Derrida which is a French philosopher argues that every language every culture is colonial and yeah. I experienced that. I experienced that in in Indonesia as well Indonesian language is enforced again we have this bubble at least some agree agreement <laughs> Indonesian language is enforced in, in this like hundreds of languages in Indonesia. And now you have like the diminishing of about 400 languages or 300, 400 languages at right. this point. Yeah. Right. So if that struggle is not just an interna- at the international level, but also local level in Indonesia as well it's itself.
1: Um, That's helpful. That's helpful to hear. So Acts 2 gives us a, a, a positive model. So, the sticky piece, the one thing that I'm like, I just want you to speak to this is it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that the Acts, the the Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14 model that Paul is presenting is actually, and we're actually, remember, we're not talking about it as though it's a, a supernatural experience or an ecstatic experience, although you have an interesting way of saying that it seems as though Paul has an understanding that all Language is in essence supernatural, and so the ability to speak multiple tongues, which maybe he doesn't have, who knows? So he's like, Well, oh, this is magic, um, yeah. or this is supernatural. Uh, but the way that he's approaching his regulations, his pastoral advice to the church in Corinth, mm-hmm. I get the impression that you're saying this is not a good model, this is not something it's it we is should problematic.
0: Form. It is, it is, I find it quite problematic,
1: yeah, right. And so, this is I a mean, challenge. It's a challenge for an evangelical who then says, but Paul's telling us to do it, <laughs> right? Yeah, so like, we, we, we get the text and the text tells us to do something. So how, how do you respond? Because I know I know that you teach in an evangelical environment. So no doubt this is not the first time that you've been asked this question. So how have you processed through that?
0: I mean, you know, um, the the New Testament is, is filled with diverse the voices. They debate with each other. Right, They debate with each other. It's a, it's a human book. it's not just like the divine book to drop from heaven is right. a, a, a human book. and some models that you have in the in New Testament probably would not work at all today right um, um, some models can potentially be but are really what do you call it breakthrough, kind of Im- Im- imaginative breakthrough in our modern social life right And acts provide that sort of um, a model that could take us to a different level of of, of engaging different languages right mm. instead of this level of telling other people to speak my language and just if you don't if you're not translated you have to be quiet. And that's that's basically Pauline way of doing it. Mm. Both are in the text, and how do we deal with this? Which we think like would 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 be a good model. I mean, everybody has to decide, right? So I I don't see the text itself as a unified text that everybody somehow in harmony. There is even within the text itself there's a cacophony. <laughs> there's a womanist scholar, who is actually my good friend, argues that maybe we should acknowledge and appreciate cacophony more and more because cacophony well, cacophony promises a, a, a radical and strong a radical level of hospitality allowing the other to be the other
1: hmm.
0: stay there in front of us yes there is that in the text for sure and we have to acknowledge that but there is also another another Way of of border also happening in the text. Paul mm. and Peter. Oh my goodness! Right, <laughs> Paul, Paul, Peter, hypocrite! <laughs> right? in 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 Galatians chapter two. <laughs> right, Not Paul, very nice. Paul. Paul is a very interesting person. I I, I teach Paul, and, and I can go on and on about Paul. You know, I I you know I I look into Paul quite closely. He calls the people in in Jerusalem the so called leaders.
1: Yeah. If they had air so quotes back then, they definitely yeah. he definitely would have been
0: using they just acknowledge I don't care. Who, whoever, they are, whoever they are, I don't care. <laughs> that's what yeah. he said.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, That's right. So 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 there is that tension. I you know, that, that's what I want to show to the students that really this text comes out of this struggle within this early Christian movement.
1: Hmm.
0: Right? Instead of showing this as a like they just love each other, they you know, and then hide that that
1: Sort of diversity and that multiple cacophony under the rug. It's interesting because yeah, you you highlight in the in the book that Martin Luther. One of the ways that he seemed to interpret the the gift of tongues was that it was an ability to take. <laughs> you yeah, interpret
0: the text yeah
1: the the challenging the challenge you know we, and we all think oh so scriptura you know guys all about just like you know giving the giving it the language giving the bible out in the vulgar and let everybody have access to it then he kind of says ah but you might need the holy spirit to help you understand what's actually happening on the text right now. obviously that's a probably a hierarchical thing that would be problematic in itself but it shows that even baked into protestantism is the idea that it's not Always such a super simple text, right? It actually does benefit from some, some supernatural. Well, I outlook. feel that I feel that we that the more
0: I think about it, you know, the Gospels itself, like four gospels. My my students always think like, why not just one gospel? Yeah, yeah. four gospels,
1: right? Let's put the Deatesser on the go here. Come on, let's 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 boil yeah. this thing down.
0: Yeah. Boil it down. It shows that um the act of erasing difference is just—it can be violent. Mm-hmm. It can be really violent. Uh, you know, I, I teach in an institution that is very diverse in terms of theological backgrounds and you know, like theological convictions. Uh, I always tell them, you know, I at one point, some people, you know, in the past, taught me that, uh, you know, if you're from Reformed tradition, you're going to go to hell. And and you just have to convert them into Pentecostalism. I was like, mm, I mean, yeah, there is always desire to make everybody look like me, think like me. I need to stop the desire <laughs> and appreciate the, the cacophony of of multiple the, the richness of the creation, right? The beauty always is always found in diversity, in multiple lines, multiple. Uh, that's that we somehow we find that beauty. That's what my friend who is the is a woman a scholar calls it the beauty of cacophony. Right. <laughs> That's good.
1: Well, got okay, Putra uh, Tupumahu, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation for me, and I've really Thanks appreciated much. you carving out the time. What are you working on next? What should people be keeping their eyes open for? I'm for I'm
0: you? I'm finishing a book on First Corinthians, so.
1: Oh, if only you'd spent more time on First Corinthians, then I, then I you I could write a book on it. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm assuming that we'll just be looking to your book as a resource for every wedding. Uh, that comes up for the next 10 years but it's like what is it, what does he say about first Corinthians chapter 13 and how this is the wedding you' are right once. <laughs>